Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Okay, can you hear me? All right, great. Well, good morning. My name's Frank. I'm filling in for Pastor Kevin. Usually I play the guitar, and uh, sometimes I play the fool. Today I'll, be fill- <laughs> Today I'll be filling in for Pastor Kevin. Those of you who weren't here last time, wonder why, why, the, why they have so few people to call on that they start just pulling people out of the band at random. Uh, <laughs> I was a pastor for about 15 years and an adjunct professor at Nyack College and St. Thomas Aquinas for a little while. Did a few other things, and uh, our family stepped out of ministry about two years ago to uh, take a break and recuperate and see what God had next for us, and he's been very good to us. So I'm very happy when I can help Pastor Kevin, who's one of my favorite guys on the whole planet, uh, have a vacation, so happy to do that whenever I can. Uh, I brought my preacher's towel, kind of a sweaty guy. <laughs> I figure, why play around? What am I going to do, bring 15 hankies? It's not enough. It's not enough. I have one in, in my pocket. It's already used up. It's actually making my pocket wet at this point, and that's just from playing guitar. So when we get into God's Word, it's going to get out of control. Did someone say ill? I think it was my wife, maybe. No? It's all right. It's, that's okay. It's a little self-deprecation to uh, prepare you for the words that I have this morning. So, but uh, it, is, it is exciting always to get a chance to uh, open up God's Word together. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And what I want to do is look at this passage. This passage in particular, it's, it's a fairly familiar verse, right? It's something that we've heard. I think it's very commonly misunderstood. And here's, here's the thing. Not only is it misunderstood, but I think it has a profound, generally overlooked insight into how God changes people, okay? So our, our title this morning, all I have is the title. I won't have slides like I did last time. I got lazy, I guess. But our title is The Growth Plan, and what I'm talking about is God's growth plan for how he grows us. If, if I thought about it a little more, I don't know if I would use the word growth. Um, it's, it's probably not the best word to describe what happens in the life of a believer as we, we uh, become more and more like Jesus, Okay? That's a good word, it's just not my favorite word. I probably would want to talk more, and, I'm, and I have this in my notes here as we work through this, about transformation, right? how we become more and more like Jesus, how we become more and more true disciples of him in our day-to-day lives. In this passage, I believe, uh, I said it has a over, generally overlooked and profound insight into how God changes people, and that really is what I, what I want to talk about. How God changes people, what our role is in it, but really how it works. You know, you can think of of Christian growth and transformation like you think of any other discipline in your life, Um, and and it works on some levels, right? When you apply discipline to something, you usually get better at it, right? So if you want to get really good at a sport, there's physical conditioning, there's practicing the actual sport. There's your general health and fitness. If you want to get good at an instrument, you want to develop muscle memory. And people are learning things about this that, uh, and I've known this for years just as a musician and a guitar player. You play something one day and you're okay at it, and then the next day you're like Eddie Van Halen on the thing. You just, it's like that day you're struggling through it, and okay, I kind of got the notes and everything's fine. And then the next day you pick it up and it's perfect. I mean, not all the time, but, but sometime, right? It's flawless and it's effortless because you develop this muscle memory for it, right? It just, your, your brain is connecting things overnight while you're sleeping that uh, just practicing during the day isn't able, you're, you're not able to do. So in some senses, Christian discipline, growing, growing in our relationship with Jesus, there are certain aspects of just conditioning your personality and your habits that are very natural, right? You could, like, teach yourself not to, not to curse like a sailor, right? You, like, learn to do that, at least, like, when you're at church, right? <laughs> you look around, like, 
You have to think. One of the most annoying things when I was in ministry is, uh, uh, and, and it's, it's, these are one of the benefits of not being a, uh, a vocational minister, right? Is you tell people you're in ministry, and then they, they start apologizing and thinking through what they said in the last five minutes. So going, wait a minute, what did I say? How many, how many F-bombs did I drop? They start counting, oh, I'm sorry. Right? They immediately apologize as if they like owe you some, some level of, uh, of, of decor. But uh, we can do that, right? We can discipline ourselves to act certain ways. We can discipline ourselves to do things that, that involves no touch of the supernatural. We can discipline our, ourselves to do things that doesn't require that God makes a miraculous change in our lives. That's what I'm trying to get at. Does that make sense? You can do certain things in the Christian life that look like Christian growth and transformation, but might just be the same power you drew upon to become better at baseball or to lose 10 pounds or to get better at the violin. Right? You're not saying the things you shouldn't say because you read that you shouldn't say that. You're not acting on all of your impulses the way you did before. I mean, anger management classes can do that, right? <laughs> That's not necessarily supernatural. But what we want to talk about are those things that you really need God to do in your life. And if you look at the scriptures and you understand that Christianity is very much a, 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 a supernatural worldview, you understand that the kind of change that God calls for and the kind of change that he moves us toward is something that we will require God to act on in our lives. Did you ever think of that? That what, what God is calling for in terms of the change that takes place in our lives, and I'm not talking all the time some radical change, but just the progressive, ongoing uh, way in which people grow to be more and more like Jesus over the passage of time. And if we really look at the Scriptures and the way that the Scriptures talk about these kinds of things, it's going to be something that requires requires God to act in a supernatural way. Of course, it requires your cooperation, my cooperation. But nonetheless, it won't take place in its most true, authentic, real way unless God is involved in it. So that's what I want to look at. I don't don't think this is going to take too, too long, but bear with me and we'll get a few things. So first off, let's talk about what does it mean to grow as a Christian? Uh, there's a couple of, couple of things that we could say it's not to get started, right? It's not getting God to forgive your sins. In fact, if you approach your own uh, 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 mission of becoming more like Jesus, of becoming a better Christian, becoming more holy, becoming more godly in your life, if you approach it with a view toward getting your sins forgiven, you've already started out on, on the wrong foot, and you've started out on the wrong foot in a massive way. Because you've skipped over our understanding of the gospel and how it works. In the Christian faith, we believe that justification, that is God declaring us right with him, God pronouncing over us in this massive legal way from his throne that we are right with him, that we don't owe him for our sins, that our sins have been covered and forgiven, we believe that that's the beginning of our relationship with God. Not something that comes later on as a reward but something that's given to us freely as a gift at the offset of our relationship. And this is the thing that sort of popular understanding, popular misconceptions of Christianity get so wrong, right? That that Christianity is a a discipline whereby through your right actions you justify yourself before God. And nothing could be more wrong. We believe exactly the opposite, that we come before God humbly humbly recognizing that we're sinners, we needed Jesus to die for our sins, so that through faith in Jesus, we could be declared right with God by his gracious act of kindness in the cross of Christ. So, to grow as a Christian, it's not getting God to forgive us of our sins. That's already complete in Christ's cross. Second, I'd say it's not a tool to get God to do your will and say yes to your requests. Right? Maybe if I'm good. We've all seen this scene play out in about a million movies, right? Someone's in a, outside a hospital room saying, God, if you do this for me, I promise I'll never do another horrible thing again and I'll serve you my whole life. We see that bargaining with God. And uh, I think sometimes in a, in, a, in a smaller, more subtle way, 
Some of us think of our relationship with God that way. Lord, if I'm more holy, if, if I can become more holy, God will give me the things that I want in my life in terms of things that are separate from him. In a certain sense, I think that's true, that the, the more my life belongs to God, the more I can enjoy his presence in my life, the more I can enjoy his influence in my life, the more my affections and desires are shaped to enjoy the things that God actually wants to give me. And God is always freely giving us of one thing, and that's himself. Doesn't always give us the circumstances we would prefer. Doesn't always give us the material things that we prefer. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But one thing we know that God gives freely of to his children is his Holy Spirit. He said, Luke says that, right? Jesus says that in Luke. That he loves to fill his children with his Holy Spirit. I remember years ago, I, I had a sermon or a teaching or something. It was prayers that God always says yes to. <laughs> right? Is, aren't those the prayers you want to focus on, the ones that God always says, yeah, absolutely I'll do that for you. And one of them is, is that we would pray that we'd be closer to him, that he'd fill us with his Holy Spirit, that he'd sanctify us. Those are things God is always in the business of doing in your life. The other stuff we're, we're always just trying to figure out and work out. And he, here's a big one, and I want you to sort of not just hear this, but sort of question yourself as I say this. See if this is you. As we, we want to grow in, as a Christian, it's not to get God to love you more. Not to get God to love you more. Why? Well, we said it's not getting God to forgive your sins. That's already complete. He's already done that. If you put your faith in Jesus, your sins past, present, and future are dealt with. Now, get me wrong. You may have sin issues in your life that you need to deal with as a practical matter for your own spiritual health and to glorify God in your life. But sin, as a, as a matter of judgment, being covered and forgiven has already been dealt with on the cross. That's a, that's a big difference. So it's not getting God to forgive your sins. That's complete. It's not getting God to do your will and say yes to your requests. That's pagan. Right? Remember the Old Testament? The, the uh, um, people are, are uh, you have this great power battle. Is it Elijah or Elisha? And they're, they're <laughs> it's in Kings somewhere. And one of those guys, let's call him Eli, because <laughs> I can't remember if it's Elijah or Elisha. He's battling, he's battling with the pagans, and the pagans are, are praying to Baal, and they're cutting themselves, and they're putting on a whole performance to try to get Baal to manifest himself, right? They're doing all these pagan things to try to manipulate their deity to do their will. That's by definition pagan. Paganism, whenever you think you're, you're, you look at your life and you say, you know, I think I'm trying to manipulate God, you're certainly not, not engaging in a Christian practice there. That's a pagan practice. Pagans are always trying to manipulate their gods. Christians are always in surrender and thanks. And why is that? Because we have a profound, ever-present, or at least we want to cultivate it, a profound, ever-present sense that the greatest thing God could give us, he's already given us in Jesus Christ. And so every, everything else is just trying to see his will play out in our lives, in our day-to-day -day lives. Now, it's not always easy to see that, but if we believe the scriptures, we know that that's the reality, that there's really no greater gift than Christ himself, and God has not held anything back from, from us in that, in that sense. He's given us everything we could ever hope for or imagine in Christ. So it's not trying to get him to do our will, that's pagan. It's not trying to get God to love you more because that's impossible. <laughs> now, before we get into anything else, I want you to think about that for yourself. Um, I'm not a big repeat after me kind of guy, but this, this is a good one. I'm gonna, okay, so play along, you'll repeat after me. All right, this is, this is a really important one. I want you to say it and I want you to mean it. I can't, uh -huh. I can't. get God to love me more. But do you believe that, though? Do you believe there's nothing you could do to get God to love you more? He already loves you completely. And the, the scriptures tell us, I think we looked at this verse the last time I, I spoke, that uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about how he's done all these gracious things in Christ so that for all of eternity, he could lavish his grace upon us in kindness. Right? It, it would be like, you know... Uh, um, 
know, I'm trying to think of a, an example on the fly. It, it, it'd be like you're on hard times, right? And your brother or your sister, they, they, uh, they, they, they build a place, for, they, they, they create a room for you in their house so that you can come and stay with them. And you get there, and they say, oh, you know, you, you prepared everything. It's furnished. It's all these wonderful things. You provided a meal for them. And they're moving in, and they say, why did you do this? And you say, well... You know, I mean, I did it because I felt bad for you, but really, I just was so excited to have you with me so that I could love you and enjoy you and hang out with you. Wouldn't that make you feel even more loved than if they said, well, you're a pretty pathetic loser, and so I made a room for you. Can't have my siblings out on the street. What would people think of me? If you said that, let, let, let's get those scenarios, right? What would make you feel more loved if the person said, well, didn't want you to die homeless on the street. So I made room. You say, oh, thanks. What if they said, well, I mean, I wanted to help you out, but I'm also just so excited to have you with me because I love you so much, and so I wanted to make it great for you. Which response would make you feel more loved? The latter, right? Well, the scriptures paint that picture of God in Christ, what he's done for us through Christ's cross. He has that kind of attitude behind it. He wants to lavish his his uh, unsearchable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for all of eternity. So growing in Christ, it can't be to get God to love you more because that's impossible. The cross provides that God could not love us anymore. John 6, 3.16 says, God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. You know that word so in there? It's a very familiar verse. God so loved the world. Well, it, it, it's usually taken, God loved the world so much, but it's actually, the Greek word so means something more along the lines of explaining the manner in which something was done. So, it's, so John is actually, Jesus is saying, um, in this way, God loved the world, or in this way, God demonstrated or expressed his love to the world, that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever believed his only son, so whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What he's saying is, if you want to find the moment in history where God showed you that he loves you, look at the cross because that's the moment where God demonstrates his love for you. <laughs> so this is a beautiful thing. If your life starts going wrong, you're losing your job, you're, uh, you, you're, your significant other dumps you, your kids are turning out to be maniacs, and uh, you don't know what to do about it, all these things are going wrong in your life, and you say, my goodness, what's happening? Does God love me? Well, there's a moment in history where God has once and forever, beyond dispute, revealed his love for you, and that's through the cross of Christ. At least that's, that's what God has said. <laughs> Whether we accept that or not is, is for you to decide. So the cross provides that God could not love me more. The cross provides that God, oh, I wrote it twice. I wrote it three times. Weird. Oh, no, I changed the word each time. Yeah, it must be important. Thanks, Jim. Yeah. It pro oh, I know what I want to... No, that's not what I want to say. I'm just looking, I'm just looking at this thinking, what, what was I thinking? There's three bold things there. I don't know. Well, the last one is this. So it provides that God could not love me anymore. It also proves that God could not love me anymore. And uh, that that motive of love was spelled out. I got two verses. One I already referenced here. This is Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just read it to you, verse 4 through 7. And I'm going to skip a little part in the middle if it sounds weird. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I mean, look at that verse, right? The Apostle Paul can't find enough words to say it. It says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, and then he says a few other things, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, the love, it's this undeniable love. If you believe in early church New Testament Christianity, if that's your faith, if that's your religion, then... Uh, God's love, you need to know and believe and be convinced of and be certain of and be comforted by the idea that God profoundly, fully, completely loves you just as you are. 
Remember what Paul says here. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God loved the dead, sinful you, so much that he sent his son to redeem you. How much more does he love the living you who has his spirit within you? He makes that point. It's a little hard. He actually makes that. he, He has that idea that God did all of this with a vision of you in sin, how much more certain can you be of his loving presence and affection in your life now that he knows you in Christ as one who is forgiven, redeemed, and regenerate? How much more does he love you as a person in whom his, he has sent his spirit to dwell? In fact, uh, Paul says this in another place, Romans 5, 6 through 8. I think Pastor Kevin talked about this pretty recently, I think. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's, it's so clear Paul's trying to make that point. He wants you to realize <clears throat> that you, you just didn't deserve this. He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you know, it's hard for us. Paul's writing this in a day where some of the people listening it may have actually happened while they were literally still sinners. The event happens, <laughs> right? You think about that? Like, this happened in their time within a reasonable amount of time. But I don't think it's at all. In fact, I think it's proper and appropriate, an argument can be made, that this timeless event, the timeless impact of Christ's death on the cross is experienced afresh as if it just happened for every believer at the time when they come to know him. Wow, when I was a sinner, he, he did all of that. He did that with me in mind forever. So, <laughs> so, we know what it doesn't mean to grow as a Christian. It's not to get God to forgive you. It's not to get him to do your will to manipulate him. And it's not to get him to love you more. So, what does it mean to grow as a Christian? I mean, we could easily talk about this all morning, but I have just a few thoughts before we get into our sort of proper points here. There's lots of ways we could talk about it. We could talk about growing in holiness or purity or obedience. Uh, But as I said, I like to use the word transformation because the Bible uses that word. That Christian growth and development is really about an internal transformation that manifests itself in our behavior. In fact, uh, I turned my iPad off. The last time I was here speaking, I'm here all the time, but the last time I spoke, (laughs) <laughs> we looked at Romans 12, 1 through 2. And we talked about these verses. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So what we talked about last time is there's an active role for you and a passive role for you there. There's the active role of presenting ourselves to God. And I literally do this. Uh, This morning, I was praying over this message. I mean, you don't have to do this. It's just helpful for me because I find this such a profound concept. Literally, in prayer, go before God and say, Lord, I just, you know, I want to present myself to you. I want to offer myself in surrender again today. Because... And he talks to us about being living sacrifices. You know what the single biggest problem with a living sacrifice is? It crawls off the altar again and again and again. That's why they kill the sacrifices. They're much easier to deal with, right? But a living sacrifice crawls up on that altar, says, God, I'm yours, and then gets distracted and walks right back off that altar. And so Paul calls on us, present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Again and again and again. Belong to him. That's that's what the message of the gospel, in terms of of what it looks like in our daily lives, that's how it unfolds. It's a a relationship of constant surrender. Enjoying the grace of God as one who's surrendered to him. So he says to present yourself to him and be transformed. And being transformed is interesting because I can't force transformation on myself. When he says be transformed, it's what, it's what scholars would call a divine passive. What it means is it's something that's done to you, but God is the one who takes action in doing it. So this is a powerful thing. 
The Bible's calling you. Present yourself to God. Surrender. Be a living sacrifice. Offer yourself as an instrument of righteousness. The result being, God then comes in and does supernatural work of transformation. See, now, when we understand how those two things connect with each other, we have a powerful grasp on what it means to grow and be transformed as a Christian. Yes, we're called upon to present ourselves to him. But we do that with assurance that he's going to do a work of transformation in us. It's powerful. It's a powerful idea. So I can rest assured that God is going to be at work in me according to his will, and I advance God's agenda in my life more and more fluidly, more and more powerfully as I continue to present myself to him and surrender. See, this is where so many Christians have such a hard time understanding this. We say things like, let go and let God. It kind of works if you're talking about, like, anxiety. But if you're talking about growing in Christ's likeness, it doesn't work that well. (laughs) You know, now you're just floundering. Now you're just not engaged in your own spiritual development. Right? We say things like, well, God is the one who does the work. I don't know how to do that. And yet the Scriptures are always calling upon you to pursue Him with all your heart. And so we get confused. Then we go the other way and say, this is up to me. i got to fix myself. Rigid discipline. I'm going to have these white knuckles and these clenched teeth. And I'm going to say, hallelujah, brother. God's good. And I'm going to have a good attitude. I'm going to trust God and everything. And you just become this mess of stress because you're trying to make something supernatural happen through sheer human effort. It just doesn't work. So then we come back to the scriptures. The scriptures aren't saying exert pure human effort for your own transformation. The scriptures are saying surrender yourself to God and watch the amazing things that he'll do in your life, in your heart over time. Working within you, using the scriptures, using the people of God, using your circumstances, whether you like them or not, to shape you and transform you so that your inner world looks more and more like the inner world of Christ himself. That's what Christian transformation is all about. That your inner self looks more and more. It's still you. It still has your personality. It's still who God made you to be. And yet in terms of the fruit and the character, the holiness, the purity, looks more and more like Christ as time progresses in your relationship with God. It's another simple way we could talk about growth. And that is Christian growth is a matter of being and growing as a disciple, a disciple of Jesus Christ. So sometimes we think of disciple, you think of the original 12, they're referred to as disciples at times, but truly those who, who trust in Jesus themselves become disciples. I have this great definition I've used for disciples from uh, the New Bible Dictionary, and it's always, I've always found it very helpful. And, and this is just defining what disciple meant in the first century, Okay. It involved personal allegiance to him, the one, your, your master, expressed in following him and giving him an exclusive loyalty. In at least some cases, it meant literally abandonment of home, business, ties, and possessions. But in every case, readiness to put the claims of Jesus first, whatever the cost was demanded. Such an attitude went well beyond the normal pupil-teacher relationship and gave the word disciple a new sense. Faith in Jesus and allegiance to him are what determine the fate of men at the last judgment. So when we're talking about becoming a disciple of Jesus, being transformed by him, it changes our first, I have three A's, and these are not, I'm glad I didn't just copy paste the same thing three times this time, so good, here we go. It changes us in our affections. I love the word affections when we're talking about Christian growth. Because affections, it's better than want, right? Want, it's like you want this, you want that, I want a cheeseburger, I want some water, right? Affections is like the thing that like moves you, right? Like I have affection for my kids, right? They're precious to me. I want to be around them sometimes. Our affections, it's what we love and long for. He changes our attitudes. That's how we approach life. Changes our actions. That's what we do, say, spend time on, spend money on, and so on. One more way we could talk about Christian growth or transformation And that is the way Paul talks about it in our passage. And that is that we would, in terms of our salvation, being, quote, worked out. 
<laughs> so that's what we're going to look at in a few minutes. This is, we'll wrap this up in a, a few minutes. Working out our salvation. So let's look at our passage again. This is Philippians. I'm sorry, I'm reading from the ESV. I know it's a little different than the Pew Bible. But uh, maybe just listen then, because I have a different Bible version. So here's the two verses we'll look at uh, fairly briefly here. He writes, Therefore, my beloved, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippian church, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let me pause there. In, in the original, it's an interesting thing. He says all these weird things, and he talks about obedience, and he's saying, please obey me. You guys were so good when I was there. Now that I'm gone, obey me even harder. You know? And I, I, can, like, I can feel what he's saying as someone who's taught and mentored a lot of people. You say, like, you know, when I was here, and you were really good, and you listened, and you were attentive, and now I'm not there. Can you like, be even more aggressive in listening to what I say? Because you know they're not going to be. <laughs> right? And you're worried that it's not going to have the same impact. Well, that's Paul. He's pleading with them. He's like, listen, now that I'm not there, you need to be even more serious about this because the Apostle Paul isn't there to guide you and teach you. You've got to really own this. And then the order of the words is different than in English. He says, with fear and trembling, your salvation, work it out. (laughs) That's what he says. That's how the original Greek is is, uh, formed. He says, with fear and trembling, your salvation, work it out. That's, that's the, and the real imperative in this verse, it's not obey, it's work it out. Work out your salvation. So here's our first official point. You're getting nervous when I get to the first point this far in. Ready? Work out what you've been saved into. And uh, he, so work out what you've been saved into. What does it mean? And here, here's one of the biggest confusions about this verse is we always say you can't earn your salvation by works. And then people hear, especially the language, I remember I was teaching a class, and a few of the guys, um, English wasn't their first language, and I was saying, you don't work to earn your salvation. And they kept reading this to me to prove I was wrong. And I was like, oh, guys. So <laughs> I think that's why I like this verse so much. I had to become an expert in it to show them how wrong they were. He's not saying work toward your salvation. In fact, as I said, the wording in the Greek, he says your own salvation, in other words, the thing you already got, You already have it. You're already saved. You're already Christian. It's already your possession in Christ. Work it out. Meaning, work out the implications of it in your life so that it permeates every aspect of who you are. So he's not saying work toward salvation. He's saying salvation's yours. Powerful gift. Incredible gift. Now work work it out. So what does it mean to work it out? This This is a lexicon definition. It means to cause a state or condition, to bring about, to produce, to create. So the idea is you've been given this massive gift. It's already yours. You have it. Now you have to work out the implications of it. You've been given this gift of righteousness. Work out the implications of it. So what's there to work out? Well, we've been saved from some things and saved into other things. So we've been rescued, saved from God's eternal judgment. We've been saved from the penalty of our sin. We've also been saved from sin's enslaving power. I like to say there's two sides of sin that we've been saved from. We've been saved from sin's penalty. It's the judgment that it brings in our lives. And what that does is it makes, turns us from being at enmity with God, being his enemies, to being his, his very close friends. That's what enmity uh, when we say it's, he moves us from enmity. Paul uses that somewhere. And so we, we were at enmity with him, and now we're... Oh, here it is. <laughs> I have it right in front of me. Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies at enmity with God, we were reconciled by the death of his son so much more, now that we've been reconciled, shall we be, shall we be saved by his life? So we were, we were enemies with God. And this is the weird thing. The scriptures focus so much and this idea that he loved us before he saved us. And yet, the scriptures also confidently declare that those that he loved, that he sent his son to save, were his enemies. It doesn't mince words. So we've been rescued from God's own judgment. We've been rescued from sin's enslaving power. So when we become believers, um, you know, people have different experiences of this when they come to Christ. Some people, you know, I've known people who were miraculously instantly cured of their alcoholism when they gave their lives to Christ. 
beautiful stories like that, right? And then others who were, clearly weren't, <laughs> who continued to struggle and have difficulty. They needed to work out the implications of salvation in areas of addiction and things like that. And everybody has different experiences of coming uh, to faith in Christ, but one, one thing I think is, is fairly well agreed upon, and that is that if you're in Christ, there is at least a nagging desire at some level to please Him, to obey Him, and to be more like Him. At some level. The conviction that we need to be more like Jesus. So these are powerful ideas uh, that can and should transform us. So what does it look like to put that into work? What does it look to put, to put that in, into practice? He says, work out your salvation. Say, so, okay, I'm called to work out the implications of my salvation in my life so that this powerful gift of God's grace permeates itself throughout my every uh, affection, attitude, and action. How do I do that? Well, I, I think there's actually, the, the answer to that is actually fairly obvious. You know, you think Paul says to the Philippians, work out your salvation. What would they do? I think he would expect them very simply to spend time learning and discussing the scriptures together, for one thing. The, the early Christian community was a community that was in God's word together often. You know, we have this weird privilege where we all have 15 Bibles in our house and 37 Bible apps on our phone. The early days, they were getting together to study the scriptures corporately, right? And so we, we can't uh, eliminate the importance of that, that we would come together around the scriptures on Sunday mornings and in small groups, and whatever way you do it, uh, that you're coming together around the word. And of course, privately in your own studies, since we have that ability. So they would spend time learning and discussing the scriptures together. They would also spend time in private and group prayer. And when we talk about, I've been talking about presenting ourselves to God, that implies going before God in prayer. And listen, I say private and group prayer. It can't just be when you're here and someone says, let's pray. And halfway through the prayer, you're closing your phone still and putting it away and, again, and listening and saying, uh, amen. That, that can't be transformational prayer in our lives. It's, it has value, but it certainly isn't going to transform your innermost being. Right? If we're going to be transformed by God, we have to spend time with God. It just must be. We're constantly being called to prayer in the scriptures, that we would go before him in supplication. I love the word supplication. And, and here's the thing. It, it, this kind of prayer would include some supplication to God that he would change their hearts and lives. You know, the, the Lord's Prayer opens with, well, it doesn't open, but the first petition in the Lord's Prayer is, hallowed be your name, right? And um, uh, I've heard it taken to mean that hallowed be your name means that you should start, if you, if you retreat the Lord's Prayer as an outline, Hallowed be your name would be a time of praise. You'd say, oh, Lord, you're great. Your name is holy, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's nice, but it's completely wrong. I mean, you could, don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to praise God, right? <laughs> you can't go wrong in that. But that's not what hallowed means. The word hallowed is you're invoking God to do something. It's, a, it's an imperative. You're saying, oh, God, you, hallow your name. That's, that's what the grammar is. You're telling God hallow your name. It's a plea. It's a supplication. Oh God, hallow your name. And to hallow your name, you're essentially asking God to see to it that his name, that he, his name represents him, that he is treated with honor and, and high regard in your life and in the world. So that opening prayer of the Lord's Prayer falls right in line with what we're talking about here. Your personal transformation, think about it. Jesus gives us a prayer and the first thing is saying, God, see to it that your name is hallowed in my life. That's the first thing Jesus tells us to ask God. It's not, oh, Lord, I love you, you're great, you're wonderful. It's, oh, Lord, hallowed be your name. Now, I want to ask you another little diagnostic thing. When you go in prayer before the Lord, I bet there's a bunch of you that praise him and thank him for things. But how many of you go before the Lord and say, Lord, change me? Lord, transform me. Help me to treat you the way you deserve. I can't even fathom what you truly deserve. You're so holy and mighty and magnificent. Shape my life so that I understand how wonderful you are. Hallowed be your name. So they'd spend time in prayer. They would consider their ways 
and ways in which they could serve one another and people outside the church. They would consider ways that they could uh, uh, tell others about their salvation. So that's what it looks like to work out your salvation. It means to engage in prayer that's meaningful and connected with working out the implications and application of the salvation we've received. It means to engage in Christian community. Can't do it alone. The early church never imagined that anybody would develop alone. It has to be in relationship. And, you know, I'm a very, uh, I'm a profoundly introverted person. And, and people don't understand introversion. They think that means you're shy. And so when I say I'm introverted, they go, because nah. <laughs> I'm not shy. What I mean by introverted is I find uh, the more time I spend with people, the more it sort of wears me out and exhausts me. So I'm not a big party guy, right? <laughs> it's not, not how I like to spend my time. And so I always found it to be a challenging discipline to make sure that I developed personal relationships with people in any church that I was a part of. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's a necessity for your own spiritual growth. Engage in Christian community and engage in Christian service so that your gifts are discovered, developed, and deployed for God's glory. So work out your salvation. Work out what you've been saved into. Second, work it out with an appropriate sense of weight. Remember how Paul frames this. He says, and I'm going to use the sort of the Greek wording here. He says, now much more that I'm not with you, with fear and trembling, your own salvation, work it out. He puts that at the front. He says, you're going to work on the implications of your salvation? Do it with a sense of fear and trembling. Uh, you know, we talk about fear and trembling. I don't think he means that we would be in dread or in fear that we're going to lose our salvation. Just that we would have a real sense of the importance and weight of what's going on here. And he explains it a little more in a minute, and I'll get into that in our next point. But fear in the sense of having a deep reverence and respect toward God. Trembling. It actually, the word trembling in Greek is, uh, sounds like the English word trauma. <laughs> like a sense of, Right? And the idea is this, and it, I, here's another little diagnostic for yourself. When you think of the fact that you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been given this incredible opportunity to know Jesus, does anything in you at all flutter for one second that says, that's important, I should take that very seriously on my day-to-day -day life? <laughs> I know sometimes I look at my heart, and I've known these things for so many years, such a long percentage of my life on earth, that I'm very used to these ideas. And I can honestly confess, I don't think they create any sense of fear and trembling in me. Not unless I give it real thought. And so I, I think the fear and trembling part, you know how you respond to that for most of us, if we're honest, is with some repentance before God. Going before him and saying, God, I, I don't know what's broken in this head of mine or in this heart of mine, but I'm just not appreciating the weight of what you've done for me. Please open my eyes to its power. Open my eyes to its beauty. Help me to see you as you really are because I'm a broken person. I need you to do that. See, I, I make God do everything <laughs> when it comes to my spiritual life. I don't assume I'm going to be able to help myself open my eyes to see the beauty of God. I go to him and say, God, you're going to have to do that. The scriptures tell me there's something I should feel and I don't feel it. I go to God and say, God, make me feel it. The scriptures tell me there's something... Uh, some character trait that I need to have and I don't have it, I go to God and say, give it to me. Uh, I, I, I know that no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be able to carry that load successfully. And so I put that burden on him. And that's just the way God wants it to be. So uh, work it out with an appropriate sense of weight. Third out of four, work it out with a solid understanding of God's powerful role in your transformation. All right, now look, this is, this is my favorite part. This is why I really like this, this verse. Look at the connection. I like the way the words connect. He says, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You say, well, Paul, why fear and trembling? Why'd you, why'd you say that? And he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. <laughs> that, explain, that explains the fear and trembling. He, he says, work out your salvation because God's in you at work. 
Let's, let's imagine, we talked about discipline. Let's imagine you want to, I play guitar, so I use a guitar. Let's say you want to be a really good guitar player, and you find out that you're going to get four hours of private, you want a context, you want a raffle, and you're going to get four hours of personal instruction with whoever you believe is the greatest guitarist on earth. Right? You got four hours of that, that person's time. And you got to show up somewhere at one o'clock for your lesson. Are you going to show up with two broken strings 25 minutes late? Probably not, right? Probably didn't sleep the night before. You're going to meet your hero. You're going to get the inside secret on how to be awesome like that person. They're going to show you some tricks. You're going to get to ask them about how they think about things. You're going to get to talk about their gear and their guitar and how they practice and what they think. And you're just going to get to take it in, right? You would go to that with a sense of privilege. You'd go to that with a sense of not wanting to waste that time. Paul says here, your life is amazing. God himself is at work trying to change things in your life. Work it out. <laughs> work, that's something you want to put some effort into. You've been given time with the master. You say, well, we all have. Yeah, but does it, that doesn't make it any less amazing. So he says, God is working in you. This word working, it means to bring something about through the use of capability. The idea is, God has capabilities I don't have. And so God's working in me. He's using his capabilities to make up for and overshadow and overcome my incapability. And so he says, God is at work in you, bringing his capability to bear on your life. And then he says, to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will... Is, is interesting. It means to have something in mind for oneself. In other words, your desires and your affections. So he, he, he breaks it into two things that God does in your heart. This is amazing. The first thing is he works on your will, what you want, what you desire. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, you know, on the one hand, I know I should, I know I should be closer to God. I should love God more. I should want to serve God. I should want to be a better person. But I just don't want to. Like, I, feel, I, I, I love God enough to feel guilty about it, and that's about it. Right? Well, Paul says, God is at work shaping your affections, your attitudes, your wants, your desires. In other words, your will. He will actually give you a new set of desires, more that he works in your, in your heart and in your life. To will, but then he's also working in you to work. It's the same word as before, but it's on the, 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 the emphasis is a change. So God has capabilities you don't have. He's in you changing your desires. He's also changing your capabilities. He's at work in you, helping you to be at work. <laughs> you say, I lack the power, the inspiration, the ability to be like Jesus. Not anymore. Now it's just a process of progressively becoming more and more like him because he's in you. So work it out with a solid understanding of God's powerful role in your transformation. Last, work toward joy and pleasure. <laughs> Look at how he frames it here. He says, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Is that like where you expected it to go? You think through all those ideas? Just work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's so big. It's so amazing because God's in you for his pleasure. It brings it back to pleasure. So we're not talking here about slaving away in misery, becoming some kind of weird pillar saint who's disconnected from the world and doesn't have any happiness in our lives. Instead, we're talking about finding the pleasure of God as he works to transform us, obviously sharing in that pleasure and having the same, the same, sharing the same joy with him. Jesus said he wanted our joy, his joy to be in us. So it's for... His pleasure. All right, let, let me leave you with this. And then I don't know who's coming up here. Someone. <laughs> Becoming like Christ always requires repentance. So these powerful ideas we talked about, I brought them to you to encourage you this morning and try to encourage you. But even if we are feeling encouraged about what God can do in our lives, we still must stop and repent. Now, what do, how do we repent? It, we repent in, in simple prayer, and we trust that God is gracious 
to restore and transform us. So repentance doesn't have to be a big labored thing. We don't have to cut ourselves before the altar of Molech like a pagan. We simply bring our hearts before God humbly and say, Lord, I repent of my sin. I turn from it. Repentance means to turn, to go in the opposite direction. Have a change of, of perspective that leads to a change in direction. And so I want to lead you in just a moment of prayer. And essentially to say to the Lord, if you're willing, uh, that we're presenting ourselves to him afresh so that he could do his work in our lives. So uh, if you would, just bow with me in prayer. We'll take just a moment of silence. I'll let you sort of gather your thoughts and speak to the Lord in silence, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, there's no greater thing than knowing you. There's no greater thing that a human life can experience beyond our creator, our Father. And Lord, we, we may see that only to the level that our imagination can, can take us to. But the scriptures tell us one day we'll stand before you, we'll, we'll, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that your Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord. Father, I pray that you would uh, grant us this grace by your Holy Spirit on account of what Christ has done, that you'd grant us the grace to have our eyes opened to your beauty, to your power, to your preciousness in our lives. And Father, we do come before you. I know I come before you to repent of not treating this gift of salvation, this gift of grace and righteousness in Christ, not treating it as something that we should be in awe, not, not uh, beholding it with a tremble in our spirit that says, this is precious, this is valuable, this is the greatest treasure I've been given, but instead treating it cheaply as, as something unimportant, as something casual that we just visit every once in a while in our lives. Lord, we want to repent of that, ask you to cure us of that sin, and instead fill us with a sense of awe that you, our God, our Creator, the one who loved us by sending his Son to die for our sins, you are the one who is at work within us, changing our will and desires and giving us the ability to live a life that is for your honor, for your glory, for your good pleasure. Father, I pray that you would make that real in the lives of every one of us listening today, that that work of transformation that we see talked about in scriptures, uh, that we would see that powerfully play out in our lives, not because we are so disciplined, not because we are so holy, but because our God is so powerful and we are presenting ourselves to him to be changed. We love you, Lord, and thank you that we can ask these things with such, uh, in such simple ways have, have the privilege of going before you because of what Christ has done for us. For it is truly in his name that we approach your throne and ask these things.